This is L. Russell Brown, the writer of Tie Yellow Ribbon and Knock Three Times. You're listening to Robert Miller's podcast, Follow Your Dreams. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream Podcast with listeners all over the world in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is an extraordinary songwriter named Sandy Linzer. You will not believe this man's credits. He's written hit songs for the Four Seasons, like Working My Way Back to You, which he did with Bob Gordio. Let's Hang On, which he did with Bob True. And he also co-wrote Dawn, but oh, well, way I'm no good for you. He co-wrote A Lover's Concerto for the Toys and Keep the Ball Rolling for Jay and the Techniques, all these songs that I love. He's written songs for the Monkees and for the Circle. And he co-wrote I Believe in You, a number four hit for Whitney Houston. How about all of that? And in the middle, as I do with all my musician guests, Sandy and I are going to do what I call a song fest. We're going to play a little bit of a lot of these songs. And you're going to hear from him and get the backstories. And nobody else does this in podcasts. And you also know if you listen to this podcast regularly, that I like to feature a song of mine underneath the introduction and at the end and I always try to make it relevant somehow to my guest. In this instance, my featured song is The Night Was a Mystery, which I wrote and recorded a few years ago during the pandemic. Why did I choose this? Well, Sandy wrote hits during the golden era of rock and roll, and I like to think that my song could have been a hit too if it came out in that era. Let me know what you think. All right, so Sandy Lindsay, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Thank you so much. <laughs> Good to see you. You know, I'll tell you, everybody thinks it was the Stones and the Beatles and all those great groups that made the era. What they don't understand is that it was you and it was guys like L. Russell Brown and Charlie Colella, the guys that wrote and produced this stuff. You were the true superstars. Thank you. I mean, I came of age musically during the 1960s. I've said this a lot during the podcast. And the music that came out in that era was just golden. The melodies were wonderful. The beat, everything, the groups, fantastic. Tell me about how you got into this business. I left college in my junior year. Didn't have a direction. So with my friend... Sparky, we opened a gambling casino in downtown Newark, New Jersey. And the local guys came up to play cards. Wait, hold on a second. Was that legal back then? No, it was not. Okay. <laughs> and we had permission from our friend Sam Skratowski's father, who was better known as Jake Mohawk. And this is all documented. And he gave us permission. He said, but don't spread out until you talk to me. <laughs> So we had a gambling casino and we were doing rather well. 
cutting games and, and taking a piece of the action. One night, Sal Russo, a school chum of mine from, gra from grammar school in Hillside, New Jersey and, and Hillside High School, came up to play cards. And he was the star of every show I ever saw in high school and grammar school. He was a great singer and he played guitar and all sorts of things like that. And he happened to bring his acoustic guitar with him because he was afraid somebody was going to steal it out of his car. Played cards for a while and everybody left and we were reminiscing about high school. And I said, Sal, I got to clean up. I began cleaning up the place and Sal was strumming on his guitar. And a melody popped into my head after about five minutes. And I said, oh, that must be song on a radio. I knew every song on a radio, but I couldn't place it. And I kept thinking, what song is that? I was playing Name That Tune with myself. Huh? Next thing I knew, some lyrics popped into the song. And I realized, could it be I'm writing a song? It never happened before in my life. I had no thoughts of ever doing this. Did you have musical training of any kind? No, nothing, nothing. No background, nothing. I love music all my life. I love to sing with everybody on the radio and dance with my friend, Danny Anzer. And we always had a, a blast. But there it was. And I said, Sal, what song is that? Is that on the radio? He said, no. I said, Sal, I wrote a song over what you're playing. And he said, oh, yeah, let's hear it. <laughs> so, you know, but the response from him started my career. All right. What was the song? I got to know. I have no idea. I don't remember. <laughs> we wrote a half a dozen songs and I, I lost 25 pounds. I, I was I was obsessed. I, uh, I was singing them for my friend Barry's mother and father, for my parents, my sister. Everybody was giving me all the encouragement in the world. And uh, finally, I said to Sal, what are we going to do with these songs? We got six songs. What, what do you do now? He said, you know something? I'm taking trumpet lessons from a guy named Pat Colello. His son, Charlie Colello, is an arranger for the Four Seasons. I'll call him and see if he'll listen to our stuff. And that was my career. I met Charlie Colello. He became my mentor, my closest friend in, in the business. And it's been no looking back since. See, this doesn't happen except in the movies, okay? <laughs> you know, this is like a, a 19... 40s movie kind of thing. You're sitting there and all of a sudden you get discovered. I mean, that's an amazing thing that you just start singing. You create six songs. You happen to have somebody that knows the guy that's the arranger for the Four Seasons. So tell me what happened then. You went to Charlie Colello and what did he do? Well, he 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 loved what he heard. He wasn't even going to meet with us, but his father said, no, this guy's paying me for trumpet lessons. You're going to meet with these two kids. <laughs> <laughs> As Charlie told me. And after that, Charlie and I, uh, uh, Sal, Sal got uh, preoccupied with his band. He had a band. He was traveling around and I was alone. So I started writing a cappella. I didn't know how to play an instrument. I didn't even know what a C chord was, but I would just bang on a piano in my mother's basement and father's basement and just, just string whatever came to my mind. And then I started singing them to Charlie. He said, come over. And when I went over to his house and I sang him a cappella, what I was doing, he put chords to it. And all of a sudden, everything came to life. All right. You got to give me a name of a song. What song came out of something like this? One of the songs that came out of it, which is the one I think he may have played for Bob Gordio, was a song called um, Sorry Tomorrow. And... Uh, he called me back. He said, you know, I played your song for Bob Gordio. I had no idea who Bob Gordio was. I said, yeah. Now, wait a minute. For anybody listening, Bob Gordio was a member of the Four Seasons. He was kind of the musical 
maestro of the Four Seasons, right? Yeah. And the producer and everything else. He was the genius behind the Four Seasons. He was, he was the genius. And he said to Charlie, Charlie, you found another me. This is perfect. Because the Four Seasons at that point, they had had three number one records, but then they had a few that didn't do that well. And Frankie and Bobby thought maybe the group, you know, had seen its best years. They wanted to go into a production team themselves. And they looked to me to work in that new production group that they were doing. They had artists that they were going to sign and Bobby and I would be writing for them. And that's what they saw happening with me. And, um, and I didn't hear from them for a long time. I thought it, they lost interest. And my sister actually called me one night, uh, one day, whatever. And she said, what's going on? Or she said, what's going on? <laughs> I said, <laughs> I said, everything's okay. I just haven't heard from those guys in a long time. Maybe they lost interest. She said, oh, stop worrying. And before she hung up, I said to her, you know, they love Marcy. I wrote Marcy for my niece. And Frankie loved the song that I wrote with Gordio for, for my niece. I said, if you didn't name her Marcy, did you have another name picked out? She said, yeah, Dawn. I said, Dawn, is that a girl's name? She said, of course it's a girl's name. Well, it's new, but I said, Dawn, wow. And she hung up and immediately I could hear Frankie's voice on that, on that Dawn, his trumpet, you know. And Claudio called very soon after that and said, what have you been up to? What's going on? <laughs> I said, well, I, I did write something, but I don't hear it for the four hours. I hear it for the four seasons. He said, well, we just left VJ. We're going to sign with Phillips. We need an album. And if you wrote something for the group, I don't know if I'm going to be writing with crew because we may be involved in a lawsuit now. He said, we can write for the group if you got something. What do you got? And he said, come over right away. This is exactly what we need. All right. I want to understand this. You're talking to your sister. She suggests the name Dawn. You've got a song in your head. You don't know how to write it down or anything because you're really not a musician. You're like an ex-gambler at this point. <laughs> and You're going to get me arrested. <laughs> you got Bob Gordio on the phone. And you tell him you got this great song. He says, come on over. Okay. Do I have it right so far? <laughs> yes. Yes. All right. So tell us what happened after that. Probably wrote the song. It didn't take long. I remember going home. I was still living with my parents, walking up the steps to my bedroom. And I remember where I stopped. And I just said, oh, my God, this is a monster. I realized how good it was. And um, sure enough, I didn't hear from them after that either. And the next voice I heard was Frankie calling me on the, on the, on on my house phone. I knew it was him. All he said was, "Sandy, did you hear Dawn yet?" I said, "No, Frank. I didn't hear anything. What's going on?" I think it's the single. Oh God, call Charlie. Tell him to take it to the studio. I want you to listen to it and call me as soon as you hear it. <laughs> <laughs> he was the boss. So they cut the record. You didn't even know that they cut it. No, I didn't know they cut it. And then he called you. And what happened? When did you hear it for the first time? Charlie took me to the studio. I had never been in a recording studio like that. I don't know if I'd ever been in any recording studio. It was Atlantic Studios. It was the first time the Four Seasons ever cut an eight-track. All their hits were on four-track. And I walked in the studio, and he says to a guy cleaning up, he says, hey, Tommy, this is the kid that wrote Dawn. Would you play it for him? So the guy said, sure. Little did I know that was the legend Tommy Dowd. So <laughs> he puts on the tape and everything. And I'm hearing, I didn't know that songs were recorded in separate tracks. So the first thing I'm hearing is this galloping guitar and some bells. And I'm sitting there and Charlie's rubbing my shoulders. 
I'm saying, oh my God, what is that? Everything started to fall into place. And then I heard Frankie's voice. I thought I would die. I held my breath for the whole, it's two minutes and 40 some odd seconds. I can guarantee I held my breath the whole thing and cried my eyes out. I couldn't believe what it sounded like. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller, your host. In 1994, I recorded my first album called Miles Behind. It features world-class guest musicians like Randy Brecker of Blood, Sweat and Tears, Anton Figg of The David Letterman Show, Al Foster from Miles Davis's band, and Tim Reese from The Rolling Stones. I'm excited to say that this album has just been released on the internet for the first time. The 10 tracks include originals like Child's Play. Plus reimagined covers of Jimi Hendrix's Fire. Korea's Sea Journey. I'm very proud of this album. It's crossover jazz that's been called hip tight and edgy. I think that captures it. Miles Behind can be streamed on Spotify, Apple, and all the other streaming platforms. As always, I want to thank you all for listening to this podcast and to my music, and keep on rocking. All right, listen, I'm going to jump ahead because we've been talking about this song. We've got to play a little bit of it now. So underneath my voice, we're playing Dawn Go Away, which I guess was your first hit. First song ever released, yeah. You know, your story is like crazy. You understand that, I hope, okay? <laughs> I don't know. And, you know, you got this great hit. So tell us what happened after that. I mean, they must have looked to you like you were the, the Lennon and McCartney for, <laughs> for the four seasons. Well, the most important thing in my life happened after that. There was a girl I dated in high school, Gail Marcus. She was in Union, a neighboring town. We dated in high school. She was absolutely breathtaking. 
and she got rid of me. She went on to college and she happened to be home for a weekend. And she ran into my friend, Bob Wasserman's wife, Lois, who's a, a real character. And Lois said, Gail, you got to call Butch and congratulate him. He's got a number one record on the radio that he wrote. Go on. And Gail said, really, Butch? She said, yeah, call him and congratulate him. So I got a call. <laughs> Hello, I feel so funny calling you. It's been so long, but I had to call you to congratulate you, but I feel so funny calling you. I said, good, hang up. I'll call you right back. I called <laughs> her back. <laughs> we were on the phone for two hours. I knew I was going to marry her, and I knew I'd be with her all my life. Unbelievable. And we still are together 58 years later. So Dawn brought us together. That's the most important thing about that song, for sure. That's terrific. All right, let's go through some of the other stuff that you did for the Four Seasons. Well, let me tell you about Let's Hang On first. I felt the seasons needed to go in another direction. And I love Motown, just loved it to death. And I wanted to write songs like that. And Denny Randall and I were partners at that point. We were songwriting partners. And I said, Denny, if we're gonna write something and get a song on a session, it's gotta be like the tops. It's gotta have that feeling. Can you play that stuff for me? And he did. And we started writing and then we sort of trapped Bob Crew. We were at Bob Cruz's office writing in one of the writing rooms there. I said, let's get Bob in on the song. Then we'll be sure to get it on the season session. <laughs> and Bob was great. Very clever. Yeah, but Bob's a killer. And we had a great time, wrote the song. And uh, Frankie wanted to hear it. And I was in the car with him. And he said, I said, well, let's get, go to New York. And, and Denny will play it on the piano and I'll sing it to you. He said, no, sing it to me right now. I said, Frank, don't you want to hear the chorus? Just sing it to me right now. If it's that good, I'll hear it a cappella. <laughs> and I sang it to him. He said, killer. So we went there. Randall played Wait, it. You were in the car at that moment. Is that what you say? Yeah, yeah. Now we get to, this, to uh, the writing room, and, and uh, Denny's playing it for, for Frankie. He starts singing it, and we're like, oh, my God. Now Frankie says, you got to get it past Gaudio. You know that, because Bobby is the leader of that group. Bobby heard it. He came in. He listened to the song. He said, well... It's great. He said, I don't know if our fans will accept us doing something like that. And I think I said to him, I don't know if they'll accept you if you don't. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I mean, I remember we cut it. We cut it at Olmstead Sound. And it just it just sounded perfect. Absolutely perfect. And um, who was it? Larry Utah. Larry Utah came to hear it because a crew wanted Larry Utah to hear it. Everybody respected Larry Utah. He had his own label. It wasn't on his label, but he, they were all friends. And Larry Utah heard it. He took me aside. He said, Sandy's the number one record. I said, you think so? He said, I know so. Wow. And it was. And it was a number one record. After that, I wanted to produce my own records. And so we found the toys. And Denny and I put our last buck together to produce the toys. And one of the songs we wrote was a lover's concerto. We wrote Can't Get Enough of You, Baby, which became a huge hit for Smash Mouth years later. 
that was on the first session, and another song, Deserted, and then A Lover's Concerto, which everybody hated. The group hated it. Charlie Colello hated it. <laughs> when we tried to shop it, Lieber and Stoller hated it. Everybody hated it, but Bob Crew. He loved it. He put it on his label. All right. We're playing a bit of that now. It comes from a classical kind of background. Tell us about the derivation of that. Why and how did you decide that that was going to be the next one? Well, I'll tell you. We had the chorus to Work On My Way Back To You written, and we wanted to use Work On My Way Back To You on the toys first session, but we didn't have a verse. And I said to Denny, remember that classical thing we were playing around with when I first met you? Play it in that tempo. I want to hear it. Maybe that could be the verse. And he started playing the chords to a lover's concerto to work on my way back to you. But it, it just didn't seem right. And I remember going to the John and calling out to him because he kept playing it, trying to make it work. And I yelled out, Denny, he said, I know. <laughs> so we knew we had something. By the time I came out of the John, honestly, I had half the first verse written and uh, it, it, it just kind of wrote itself. And we knew we had something really special. We were laughing and rolling on the floor. We were so excited about it. And everybody hated it. Everybody hated it. But why? I'm trying to understand. I mean, this was a completely different direction. You don't have a background in classical music. Right. How did you get to this? I have no idea. You tell me. <laughs> <laughs> if I knew how, I would do it again. <laughs> and again and again. But um, we went to cut the record. And we spent so much time on Can't Get Enough Your Baby. We thought that was going to be the single. And it wasn't coming across those speakers. I knew it wasn't a hit. And we did the second song, and there was no time left. We only had maybe four or five minutes left. And Charlie Colello, who was the arranger, called up from the studio, because we were upstairs in a, in a booth. The studio was downstairs. And he said, Sandy, we don't have time to cut that last tune. I knew he didn't want it anyway. He hated it. He said, we don't have time to cut that last tune. And that's when I became a record producer. I slammed my hand down on the talkback. I said, bullshit. I said, we're cutting that song. We got enough time. Run the tape. We're cutting that song. And this, this was the miracle. The guy who does the copying on all of Charlie's charts, who were written by hand, always made a mistake. And it always held up the sessions because the musicians would say, Charlie, bar 73, is that a D-flat major or a D-flat minor? And Charlie would go, ah, the careless weed, because his name was Weedo. He called him the careless weed. <laughs> so Charlie, but Lover's Concerto, no mistake. One take, done. I didn't even hear it. It went by so fast. That was done. And when we went to mix the record, we spent hours mixing the other two. He just put the faders up. I swear to you, he put the four faders up equal. He ran it past the speakers. I said, if you touch that, I'll kill you. That's a number one record. Don't touch it. <laughs> and that was it. It was a miracle song. What a charmed life. Unbelievable. All right, keep going. I mean, this is like a saga that I don't want to hear, hear end. <laughs> well, the best part of A Lover's Concerto 
was that that year we had two number one records. So of course we were invited to the BMI award dinner. I'd never been to a BMI award dinner and I still didn't know if I had a career. I really didn't. I knew I was making some money and I knew we were happy and, and we were just delirious with what was going on. But I, I honestly, in my heart of hearts, I didn't know if I had a career. And we're sitting at the head table with, I think, Ron Antron or Stan Catron from BMI. And he said, hey, Howie Greenfield wants to come over and say hello. I said, Howie Greenfield? Howie Greenfield wrote all of Neil Sedaka's hits. He's a genius. And he comes sauntering over. And I stand up to greet him. He puts out his hand. He looks at me and he says, how gentle is the rain that falls softly on the meadow you. And he walked away. <laughs> and that was my acceptance. You know, that was it. I was one of them, you know. You knew that you were in at that point, huh? Yeah, yeah. I, yeah it was such a wonderful moment. I can't tell you. I never forgot it. God. And that was that was a lover's concerto. It was it was it was just an amazing song, truly. And the record went to number one. It sold all over the world. In Japan, it's like the national anthem there. You've had an amazing career. I want to keep going with a few of these things because you know you went from one to another. All right, tell us about keep the ball rolling for Jay and the Techniques. That's another, you know, off on a tangent kind of thing. Right. Well, Jane and Techniques had a hit with um, Apple Peaches Pumpkin Pie. Which is a novelty kind of song. So I came up with the idea for Keep the Ball Rolling. And um, we wrote the song and I loved it. I loved the melody. I loved everything about it. We played it for uh, Jerry Roth, who was producing Sandy Techniques. He called me back. He said, Sandy, it's, it's a monster, but you got to change the title. I said, why? He said, it's too risque. You got to make it something like Keep Your Love Growing or something. I said, I'm not changing that title. That title's perfect. It's got like a rock and roll title, rolling, you're rolling. Come on. <laughs> anyway, they cut it. It was a top 10 single. It was a hit record. And then it became the theme song for Bowling for Dollars. And it became the theme <laughs> song. <laughs> and became the theme song for the uh, Philadelphia Eagles, because Jerry was from Philly. <laughs> and he got the, them to use it as a theme song. And then it became a, an instrumental hit by Al Hurt. So I love Keep the Ball Rolling. Melody's sensational. And it, but it was got banned in some parts of the country. Probably would have been a top five record or a number one record, but it got banned because it was such a risque lyric at the, at the, in those days. Oh, come on. That's so silly, of course. I know, I know, I know. You're reminding me of, what was it, when the Stones were on Ed Sullivan and they couldn't sing Let's Spend the Night Together, or at least right. Sullivan didn't want them to sing it. right. And I think Mick Jagger said, the hell with you, I'm going to sing. Exactly. <laughs> that was so beautiful about live TV. Right? <laughs> That's right. What could you do at that point? Yeah. 
Okay, what else do you want to talk about? I mean, you've written so many things. You've done so much. Tell me one more song that we're going to go through. Well, they were all, they were all wonderful. Uh, you want to tell me what you did for the monkeys or the circle? The monkeys, <laughs> the monkeys was, I had a great relationship with Donnie Kirshner. Okay. And he asked me to come over and he wanted me to sign with him and wanted Denny and I to sign with him. And he said, you'll write for the monkeys. And we did. We wrote some songs for the monkeys. And they loved I'll Get Back Up On My Feet, and they cut it. And they cut another one on the day we fall in love. Your lips kissing mine with a love that is real. And you look so young and fair. On the day we fall in love, you and me. On the day we'll fall in love, you'll see. And that was kind of my relationship with them because I, I left Donnie and went back to Bob Crew. I wanted to be with Crew. I felt that was my home. Were they rivals or something or what? No, oh, everybody was a semi-rival in those days. They all loved each other. They were they were blocks away from each other. Right. You know? And everybody loved each other those days. It was wonderful. It was a small community. You know, LA wasn't anything in those days. Were you operating out of the Brill building or was that the same era? No, Bob Crew, Bob Crew was a kind of a uh, a rebel, and he was up in uh, Columbus Circle. Oh boy! So our office was there. Although Atlantic Records. Hold was on, there. for anybody who doesn't know, that's got to be what twenty blocks north of yeah. where the Brill Building yeah. was. Yeah, exactly. It's like you're describing another country. Okay, <laughs> right. Well, it was. <laughs> it was a different culture, but um, yeah, the Circle, the the Monkeys was, was not a monumental thing for me. I mean, I love being a part of it. We did we did well with them. The next biggest thing that happened for me was I was on staff at Epic Records. They signed me as a staff producer. First thing I did when I was there was breaking down the walls of heartache. which became a huge hit in England. And when Elton John just did his movie. Um, Rocket Man. Thank you. He did Rocket Man. The only song in that movie he didn't write is Breaking Down the Walls of Heartache. And it must have had an impact on him because they perform it live in, in, the, uh, in, in the movie. And uh, it could have been a song for the Four Seasons. But um, we were now staff producers at Epic and... We had an allegiance to them and we had a, a band, an R&B band, and we, we did that song with them. And then I met Elliot Lurie and the, uh, Looking Glass, and I produced uh, uh, 
Brandy, Looking Glass record. And there's a girl in this harbor town And she works laying whiskey down They say, Brandy, fetch another round She serves them whiskey and wine The sailors say, Brandy, you're a fine Brandy. Oh, that was another big one. And uh, I did the, did the tracks with, with them. They were great. And I was going to wait for Charlie Colello to do the sweetening. And the guy, Don Ellis, who was the head of A&R, who had it in for me anyway, he said, find somebody else. I want it done right away. I said, no, I want to wait for Charlie. He said, do somebody else. I said, OK. I called someone else, did the sweetening. It wasn't great. And he fired me. And it was a blessing in disguise because I was now out of that bureaucratic element that was not conducive for me and i went home we were out of money had two kids by then and i'd never written alone you know and had success but i had to i got a call from steve metz he said sandy i got a girl who sounds just like barbara harris from the toys he said why don't you write for her and produce the record with me i said i'd love to i tried to write something and i hadn't had a hit in a year or two and I called Charlie after writing two songs. He came over and listened to him. He put his hand on me. He says, you're back. We cut two songs. And one of them was a song called You Can Do Magic. You can do magic. You can have anything that you desire. Magic. And you know you're the one who can put out the fire. You know darn well when you cast your spell. It went to, I think, number one in the UK. And then Tommy Mottola, who I was friends with by then, called me up because he had brought me Hall and Oates to Epic when I was on staff. I begged Don Ellis to sign them. He said, if you think those two kids could have a career, you'll never have one. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like the 17 record labels that passed on the Beatles. I know. Yeah, really. So uh, so we, we were all friends. And, uh, and Tommy called me. He said, Sandy, you got to smash in England. Come to chapel. Let us administer the song. I'll get you a great advance. And you and I will start make, they, making music together. The first band I found was Dr. Buzz's original Savannah band. And uh, I produced that album. It was nominated for a Grammy. Huge monster hit. And I followed it up with Native New Yorker. And then after that, the Bon Bon V with uh, Larry Brown, L. Russell Brown. <laughs> Larry can't use his own name because when he when he became a songwriter, 
he went to BMI and he said, well, my name's Larry Brown. They said, no, it's not. <laughs> You're going to have to change it because we already have a Larry Brown. We got another Larry Brown. <laughs> so he became L. Russell Brown. Um, but anyway, I wrote the Bon Bon V with Larry. And um, you know, I, was, I, was, I was rocking and rolling again. I'll tell you something. You have had a charmed career, really. This is just unbelievable to, to listen to you. It's like the history of rock and roll. We have been speaking here with Sandy Linzer. I can't even begin to summarize again all the hits that this man has had, but you've made me totally jealous. That much I can tell you. I want to thank you so much for being on this podcast. Thank you. All right. We're going to listen now to that song of mine that started off the episode. It's called The Night Was a Mystery. I want to thank you all for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com.